Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. For years, folks from all over the world who had music blaring in their hearts have taken a chance and moved to Nashville, Tennessee in hopes of either becoming a recognized artist, songwriter, or both. I myself tried my hand at that dream and in the process met a great musician and all-around kind guy by the name of Jeff Graham. We reconnected recently and decided to talk about Graham's music and his adventures in Music City. So you're originally from Missouri, right? Yeah. So what made you decide to go to Nashville? I had lived in Austin briefly before that. You know, my first two albums, the first one came out when I was living in Austin. I couldn't really get a band together down there to promote it. So I knew musicians were back in Missouri that that would help me. So I moved back up there, moved back to uh, Joplin briefly, but then landed in Springfield. But it was kind of just kind of feeling like by the time I was ready to move to Nashville in 94, I had released two self-released albums on cassette because vinyl was just a little too out of my range. And so was CD at the time. I'd done lots of openings for national acts. Uh, Springfield was really good for that. And kind of, kind of this feeling that, like, you know, and I, I had toured around the, the four states. Arkansas, maybe that's why that came up, because that was a real good state for us. We used to open for uh, a guy down there who was on Geffen Records named John Kilzer. And uh, he was really good to us and his band, and we would... Uh, so we'd, we'd go down to Arkansas and get treated like stars and uh, come back to Springfield and it's like, you know, get in line. <laughs> and uh, so that Arkansas just has, I have these warm memories of that. But so I really kind of like I toured regionally. I had two releases. I had opened for some national acts. I kind of like kind of had hit, you know, kind of hit these bases that I wanted to hit. And I just feel like, I needed to give myself that ultimate shot of like, you need to be around a lot of other songwriters, a lot of songwriters who are better than you, who you can learn from. And I had a friend who, who had just gotten a job with Tammy Wynette. We were roommates over in Springfield and he said, come over and you can stay with me to get yourself a place. And just the timing seemed kind of right. And it was part of my plan when I was in my late 20s. I said, I'm just going to devote the next 10 years of my life to original music, Mm -hmm. whether I'm playing in a band or releasing my own stuff or whatever. And that's what I did. And so Nashville was kind of part of that plan to stay on that course of, you know, either be around people with original music, my own original music. and, And that's what I proceeded to do. It's interesting that you said you tried in Austin because I know sometimes when I was in Nashville, back when we met each other, there was a lot of people saying, "Oh, you need to go to Austin, you know, get out of Nashville." So, what do you say to that? Why do you think it didn't work for you, or was maybe Austin just a greener grass that didn't exist? 
I did I did one thing really wrong when I moved down there was I moved myself uh, just because it was uh, affordable, but I got a place in the suburbs, which is Round Rock, which kind of like you know when you when you're trying to immerse yourself in a place. You should live nearer, closer to the nexus of that place. And I probably should have gotten, you know, tried my luck. I just saw some places in East Austin and South Austin where it looked like, well, I might have my car in the morning. I might not. And But, but that's where I for living. And I think in retrospect, if I had to do all over again, I definitely would have gotten myself closer to being in Austin. Because you get home from a job and then you're like, oh, I need to start hitting the open mics tonight. And then there'd be nights where like, you know what, I'm staying home. And a lot of nights I did make myself go back into town after, you know, getting off work. But Austin's, Austin was, I'll, I'll tell you this, because I can compare the two cities within a similar time frame. Austin was a lot harder to get musicians interested in playing with me. I would say I had better luck in Nashville. Uh, in just terms of, um, and, and that just was probably just my own experience with my own music or something, but it was, it was kind of, kind of clicky. Uh, I really found Nashville to be a little less clicky because ev- almost everybody's from somewhere else. And Austin has that to, to, uh, quite to some respect, but there was something that was a little, a little harder to break through with Austin. And I really went to a ton of open mics. I met a lot of musicians. And I would say as far as the meeting and the greeting, I did about the same, but I found a little more recent. You remember when we all used, did you go to Jack's Guitar Bar? Oh yeah, I was gonna bring that up. I really never encountered anything that that was as receptive as say Jack's Guitar Bar in Austin. So that's a good comparison I could I could give it, but I, I probably made a, you know, a, a short story long there, but. When I first met you, I'm pretty sure this is correct. I remember going to Jack's Guitar Bar. I was kind of doing like you where I was trying to get out and trying to learn from other people and try to get over stage fright and things like that. And uh, my main memory of you, two things from that, the first time I met you was, one, you sang what seemed like an epically like 15-minute long song about the Battle of Dunkirk or the evacuation of Dunkirk. Of course, now that I look back, it was probably only three minutes long, but it seemed like a, you packed so much of a story in that song. Of course, then you were just kind to me. Like you, I think you came up and started talking to me, and that kind of goes to what you were saying about at Jack's, like nobody seemed to be above each other too much. But if you don't mind talking about first, like why you decided to tackle the miracle of Dunkirk in, in a song. But on the other side of the channel, help was on the way. From the rich man to the poor, from Alderberg to Hastings Bay, a call came down. If you got a boat that flows, Mother England needs you now. That was really random. I had just checked the book out at the Nashville Library. I'd always heard that word, the, the name of that town, and I and I was like, that sounds cool. I wonder what that's in reference to. And I, I had some idea that it was World War Two. And it was a really well done book. And now, now there's so many books on it. And at the time when I was at the library, you know, there weren't. I'm glad that it's gotten more attention, of course. And there was the movie uh, and everything. But I just kind of got fascinated. And I guess what hooked me in it was just, you know, I, I love underdog stories because 
they were hoping to get 30,000 troops home and uh, they got over 300,000 and I think that's pretty staggering when you still think of the you know they they were getting bombed going on back and forth across the channel but just just the percentages involved kind of just just impressed me and I just got me pretty inspired 887 vessels of every shape and kind help been on reaching Dunkirk to bring them home alive the Germans bombed the harbor We had to circle round and round But then a voice came from the darkness And said, are you going to London town? I had very few story songs I really wasn't that kind of a writer And I've only uh, written just a few more since then And so I felt like, you know, it was a challenge To try to write a story I love the idea of uh, Because I, I came across instances of this Of fathers and the younger son going in, you know, with the impetus that if, if they, you know, to try to rescue the elder son who's over there in Dunkirk. And uh, that just really just stuck with me because there were lots of people with their little sh shanties and little, sea, you know, fishing trawlers. Uh, almost anything that, that, you know, the Admiralty wanted anything that could hold anybody that could make it across the channel. And just the idea of civilians rescuing the military in some situations, um, I just thought was pretty fascinating. So, well, let's talk about Jack's guitar bar. There was, you know, several characters there, of course, but some of the people that stood out to me. I think you knew that some, a lot of them better than I did. But of course, Jack himself was a character. I'm sure I told you this. You might have been there. One night, I was just kind of like, I just felt like playing a Joe Ely song, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I did Me and Billy the Kid. We had the same girlfriend and he never forgot it. She had a cute little chihuahua till one day up and shot it. And right after I got done, Jack comes out in front of me and he goes, Who did that song? Who wrote that? And I go, well, Joe Ely. He goes, you better thank him. And then, and then I was like, and I, I didn't really, you know, because he had that that uh, thing with that smashed guitar that was in the back on the wall. He goes, this guy played covers. With some people, I always wonder is like, is you know, I know they're they want a mecca for original music, but is, is that also to get them out of BMI and ASCAP fees? Oh yeah. So uh, and I'd actually I'd even said right before the song, here's one by Joe Ely, and it was I wasn't like I was trying to. But it just cracked me up that he was so dramatic, and he, I remember his, he was kind of out in front with his, pointing his fingers straight at me, <laughs> and it was just like, I call upon you, sir, to tell everybody who wrote that song. <laughs> yeah, he was rough, but, and I thought intimidating, but not as intimidating as his exterior would seem to indicate, you know, he could be kind. Yeah, yeah, it's like, uh, I think maybe, you know, I you did some digging, or some people found out that he had had some cuts at one point in his career, uh, had been a writer. One thing was incredibly refreshing is like you come from, you know, where I'd been living around Joplin and Springfield where there were people who play original music, but it, it wasn't like uh, as hallowed as it would be, say, in a town of writers like Nashville. And I just love the idea of a guy who's concerned about the writer getting credit who wrote that and who did that if you're if you're going to cover a song 
you know, just like I'm not used to playing in bars where they're be owned by someone who would give a shit. You mm -hmm. know, I, I love that fact. All about being berated <laughs> with that being in the genesis uh, thereof. But I, I just thought there's a lot packed into that. Now, when I came in, I can't remember who was actually hosting the Riders' Night. I do know that I kind of missed that Stacy Earle had been at least one of the hosts, and she did come back on occasion. And she was very kind and encouraging. I always remember that. Did Were you there when she was the regular host of it? No, I opened up for Mark Stewart and, you know, her husband and, and Stacy years later in Tulsa. And we were trying to do a timeline. And Mark figured, he goes, you know, he goes, I think you must have started going there right when we stopped uh, hosting it. And uh, did, did Rod host it? for a while that's right started. rod pycott so, yeah i just missed that and uh, there was another really talented uh songwriter who had i think done jacks before them kim oh somebody put out real good records her picture was all around the bar too kim kim richie kim yes she was fantastic yeah one of the the hosts at one point okay and so i know kim ritchie had done it and then uh you know mark mark stewart and stacy earl or stacy i'm not sure but okay. and, and he gets to Tulsa every so often and I, last time he did i opened for him and that was that was that was fun Nashville adventures, you know, tell me some stories. Like, what were some of the the highlights, the, the low points? You know, some of them really came out of Jack. I was playing bass for Rod, and we did his first ever gun-shy dog. Midnight, baby, tossing and a turning Our hearts on fire The house is burning It's a thousand degrees he had a really talented guitar player, singer guy, Tom Mason. Tom yes. Mason. Yeah, he was great. And he had this, God, he had a great slide, and I think he had a Mesa Boogie amp. He had a great little, little gear setup. But anyway, during the set, not only did we, all of a sudden we get uh, police radio coming through his amp. I mean, <laughs> crystal clear. You could, you could, I mean, you could hear their, the police guy's thoughts. And we all stopped for a minute, and we just laughed, and of course went on. But uh, that that particular gig is one I wish was on video because I didn't mess up, and I don't think anybody really did. And it was but it was kind of raw. We only had a like a practice or two, but it was kind of good because of that. That absolutely goes down in uh, in terms of like my top ten of of live gigs I've ever gotten to do. I always just thought. I, you know, it's just one of those times where you just feel like I'm in the right place 
at the right time with the right songs and the right people, you know, and it had that feeling. So I would I would say playing bass with Rod uh, was was definitely a high point. Uh, we did some more gigs. I ultimately kind of withdrew myself from his band again. I just said, you need a better bass player than, than I am. I go, you need some guy on stand-up, you know, that, or could do stand-up when he wants. And uh, it was kind of great, uh, good bass education because Rod had been a bass player in a lot of bands. So whenever I had a doubt of what to do on a part, he was right there and was kind of like, you know, I had a little, like a little bass study and, he, you know, it was like, so So playing with Rod was, was definitely a high point, especially that particular gig. Kind of low points might have been when you, when you picked me up and I, I somehow I, I'd gotten myself uh, where I think I was dehydrated and I had been to an urgent care type facility and I, I think I was so dizzy I was trying to walk back to where my car was parked at my job. I remember you come along and go, hey brother, you need to ride? You know, I go, yeah, I really do. <laughs> and that's just kind of where you realize as a person living on your own, you're not you're not doing your best and taking care of yourself, yeah. which I sometimes you know found myself guilty of, and that was kind of an extreme version of that. But but you know, other than that particular little episode, Nashville was a real positive for me because to tell you the truth, Tim, I came there a little burned out. My first job was working at the A Cup as a stagehand. Uh, my friend Big Powell helped me get. And I was more than happy to plug in some wires for people and focus some lights and just kind of rip it back and kind of think about, okay, I've been going at this this one way. Is there a better way I can be doing this? I had sold almost all my gear that I had back in Springfield. And little by little, I worked a lot in Nashville. Uh, I started buying gear back. and But Nashville kind of, I it's funny, you know, some people just, they go away from it and they're like, you know, oh, f- that place. For me, it was kind of like a place where it kind of got me back up as kind of a full-functioning musical person, you know. And so I moved home because my dad was in bad health. I didn't want to be nine hours away when he died. He lived for a few more years uh, after I came back, but I, I feel like I called that one right. And I was glad that I got to be nearer to him, uh, you know, before he died. Right. But no, I, I just, I just, Nashville was just a pretty darn positive experience for me. Things you ain't got all the things to do this. The Cadillac twist, the Cadillac twist. In my head I saw stars, I made a wish now. I remember one song, again from the Jack Guitar Bar days that you played. It might have been the first time I saw you, Cadillac Twist. Oh, that's written by a friend of mine, Russ Summers, who uh, we played in bands in Columbia, Missouri. And now he's been in Austin since 89. And uh, that that's one of his. I'm so glad you remember that song. Oh, yeah. It's a catchy little song. You know, I could, especially, uh, there's a lot of car songs that, you know, catch on. And it's, it's a shame that one uh, didn't get heard by the, the powers that be, you know. I love his line, I'm a consumer-oriented teenage punk. <laughs> that always really, really stuck with me. I'm a consumer-oriented teenage punk. Little James Dingo and I'm Donald Trump. I turned 16 July the 5th, but I'm already doing the Cadillac twist. So it is happening here, Mr. Jones. Did you lose 
uh, well, that was the album that I did most of in, in Nashville, Big Bright Day. And uh, I had a band here in Tulsa that did a pretty nice version of uh, Cadillac Twist, and it's out there on YouTube. Uh, probably under Jeff Graham and the Painkillers. They did a really, really nice job of it. Now, I was listening to some of your more recent uploads, some music you've been doing. You probably have always been into this, especially you mentioned Joe Ely. It sounds like uh, some of the songs are going like more of a Tex-Mex or kind of a Blasters or Los Lobos. There's a little little bit of a Latin thing going on. Yeah, I mean, that, that is probably intentional. It's like, uh, I've even gotten a little more, gotten to show a little bit on the brand new album. Well, it's, it's a year old now, but there's some, uh, one that's very Carlos Santana influenced. guitar influences and but you know i never was really in many bands where i could show that off my idea with the juvenation is that i can show the low slobo side and the the santana side and i can mix that in with the rockabilly and it, it all becomes one big thing because i would always end up in, even in the painkillers i would always end up with well here's the new album i got but we have this kind of but the band has a, a particular sound and I'd have to just kind of strip off five or six songs that fit the sound of the band and the, that obviously that the band liked the best and kind of mold it to fit the band. And then the, the juvenation idea was kind of like, hopefully we're a, the kind of band I could play an entire album with and not just uh, have to kind of pick and select. Firelight flickers on the wall Scenes out of the Beggars whisper in my heart I will hold them liable Hooded thieves who want it all I swear to God I will make them crawl Blue steel, can you hear my call? Help me if you're able So you're still playing music, right? I, I keep doing this, Tim, and I don't know why, but I, yes, I'm still playing music. I mean, I hate to ask these kind of questions, but I mean, I think everybody wants to know, like, what's the closest you came to getting a cut, or were you ever encouraged or given a critique by somebody in the industry? And, and this defines my, my so-called career. Mm-hmm. I was living in Austin. I got a record company rejection from Enigma Records the same day that I had a DJ from a radio station uh, in Waxahachie, Texas, say, we're playing your your cassette. But we, 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 what we do is kind of called progressive country. And uh, we, this is even before, you know, the, the term Americana mm-hmm. uh, was coming out because this is 89. It was right, right you know, when that was about to happen. And so... In the same day, within within um, almost maybe the space of an hour, I've gotten Enigma Records saying, eh, tape didn't move me. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And then I got this record, this DJ calling me up, and then 
And it was like, so yin and yang, uh, back and forth is all that I've ever gotten. <laughs> I would say really the closest I ever was was probably even before I came to Nashville, which was on my second album. It got a lot of decent regional press and we were opening for national acts. We played at a showcase that the Geffen uh, rep was at. I'm convinced that's probably the closest I I came uh, I ever came from from uh, to getting kind of like just looked at it possibility because I had a pretty good band at the time. Uh, the second album, like I said, got some national attention uh, or at least no, I say regional. Uh, that was more. But, you know, in, in terms of Nashville, you know, I really, I came there with kind of a longer laundry list of uh, the people that I wanted to, to, you know, give my stuff to, which I did. And I even found a few more, didn't really even hear like, hey, that you need to do this or you need to do more of that. Just didn't get a lot of response, which was kind of leading me to like, I uh, was kind of getting that kind of feeling like, well, I started a college degree way back in the 80s, and I always told myself after a certain amount of time, I was going to at least finish that up. And after uh, three years of just really, you know, trying really hard in Nashville with my own stuff, being a part of other people's stuff, I just felt like I was a guy that was on third base for a long time. Mm -hmm. Like, But, you know, you've got to have that, that person who's going to throw you in that's going to get you from third base to home. And that's really that, whatever that is, you know, that just really had never happened. When you went back home, of course, you said you went back to take care of your dad. But did you feel like, oh, man, I'll never mess with music again? Or I feel like the Al Pacino thing where just as I, they keep trying to pull me back in. And I felt really calm about it. I felt very like well you know i might dabble but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go at it uh as hard as i have in the last 10 years but but golly you know i was back within a couple weeks i actually played a gig in austin and even did more recording of the album than i'd started in nashville uh this was all just kind of uh through my friends that had been down there since 89 you know, music just kept going on. So I just kind of said, I, I'm not going to throw myself, I, I'm not going to, you know, kind of work as hard as it, but I'm sure I'm going to turn it down if it comes my way. And so I've had now, you know, 20 years of uh, relationships with Tulsa musicians where I really thought when I, when I got myself back into college, I thought, okay, I'm going to get a teaching degree and all that. And I've now realized I've, you know, spent the last 20 years playing in Tulsa, which is something that I didn't really foresee, you know, and uh, so I just, I keep going. With a bunch of down every lane, beyond every hill of pleasure, hides a valley laced with pain. moved into a different portion of my life where I've had to say goodbye uh, to some good musician friends in the last six years that passed away from cancer. I've lost three to cancer, 
we had I had another friend who, uh, who was the drummer for the Painkillers who just and so this is this part of my life is getting a little this it's gotten a little weird just in terms of there's just people on you know my contacts book who I should take off you know that aren't there anymore mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I'm sure just everybody hits that point. I'm 57 now and. That part of my life has been kind of just makes you just think about your own life and how how long you've got to to still play music and and kind of makes you more determined than ever. If somebody calls you up, you know, um, yeah, I'm going to show up and play music. Uh, I'm thrilled to, to say my son is a really good drummer and we uh, work. We've been kind of working on a surf album at home. He has something I never had, which was seeing anybody who came before me play music. And uh, I didn't ever have anything like that. He's kind of grown up thinking, doesn't everybody's dad go out and have gigs and show up, you know, come home at two in the morning, you know? And uh, I, I love the fact that uh, we get to kind of, we share uh, some stuff with, with music. And my daughter's very musical too. Well, it's a Friday night and I'm sitting here drinking a cold. Rain stops falling down at our side. Lightning strikes and I see her sitting over it. It's heavenly. Next, I ask Jeff about a song called Next Door to Nadine. Well, that's really easy, and it's a short story because it's not my words. Oh, dang. Uh, I- I'm the music. Okay. Uh, it's a friend I grew up with, and we were grew up, came up in bands together. Tony Ferguson wrote those uh, words. He'd get a kick out of somebody, you know, being interested in it. In fact, recently, I just feel like with the most recent album, I just kind of feel like kind of out of words so any writing i've done uh has just been me on the music uh i've, I've co-written with other people because uh, i just uh have not had a lot of thoughts in my head that i feel like we're worth going to to song yeah i was gonna but, bring that but, bring that up because i noticed a lot of the songs are instrumentals which i i like uh it's hard to make it instrumental interesting i think but you do it well, I finally got myself into uh, kind of a low strake jackets. We even played some of their stuff uh, uh, type band uh, that was uh, pretty much all instrumental called the Soul Surferos. Uh, I'd still be playing with them, but the bass player, he was one of my friends I lost to cancer. But no, it was kind of fun to finally get in one of those bands where we're really kind of going at it instrumentally. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of could apply some stuff more deeply that I had just kind of dipped my toe into in other years, you know, and stuff. Because even Nadine, the lead on it, it's real surf-inspired. That's a co-write, and, and in fact, with two other guys, really. And uh, one guy kind of came up with the chorus, and then the melody that's going on there and then of course it's all Tony's words and that's just uh just my music well, I'm next 
If you'd like to dive more into Jeff Graham's music, you can go to the website, and I'm going to spell all this out, jgram299.wixsite.com slash jeff-gram. And I'll spell that out, jgram299.wixsite.com slash jeff-gram. G-R-A-H-A-M. And we'll put a link up on the blog if you want to go about it that way. If you're still in a Nashville mood, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episode 152 a listen, where we talk with songwriter Bill Luther, who ended up writing some huge hits for the likes of Kenny Chesney, Tim McGraw, Faith Hill, and others. Also, there's episode 66, where a Nashville session musician by the name of Steve C. tells hilarious stories of a mostly disastrous nature. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.